Hi, this is Ray Barry, and welcome to the Audio Wave Cafe podcast. On this episode, my guest is poet and sax player Joe Reynolds. First, I talk about who buys vinyl records, and I'll be shining a spotlight on Bird Sound Studios, a long gone but much respected recording studio. Also be playing Maybe Baby by 80s soul and reggae band Stax. When I recently checked out my cassette tape collection, I discovered quite a few scattered throughout the house and loft. Not so my vinyl records. They reside happily in two LP cases, and I know exactly how many there are as I haven't bought any LPs for about 30 years. But I do have a record deck in my study. Every week I wipe off the dust and clean the chrome bits. It looks cool, but it's hardly ever played. Just who today buys vinyl records? Well, it seems a fair few of you. In 2021, more than 5 million records were bought in the UK, and an 11% increase on the previous year, whereas music streaming grew less than 6%. The biggest selling album in 2021 was ABBA's Voyage LP, and Ghost Town by The Specials was the biggest selling single. My first record player was a Dancit, and it was really basic, just a tone and volume control. And you could stack a bunch of singles on the multi-changer, and you had about 15 minutes listening time before turning all the singles over and playing the B-sides. I always had the volume turned up to the max, which was around 3 or 4 watts output. A ghetto blaster it wasn't, that's for sure but it opened up a whole new world. I could have my mates around who would turn up with their own singles, beer and girls. (laughs) It's not just people who have never really moved away from vinyl records, but those in their teens and twenties who are also attracted to this odd way of playing music. The physical aspect of only a 30 centimeter square album cover is an enticing draw, not just the vinyl disc itself, but there could also be a lyric sheet, photos of the artist or band and a bio but being a vinyl record collector can be expensive. If you fancy buying Amy Winehouse's Back to Black album from HMV, it'll set you back a cool £28, while David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Seeky Stardust and Spiders from Mars 50th Anniversary Picture Disc will squeeze your wallet out of almost 40 quid. When you add in the cost of a decent record player, then yeah, it could turn out to be an expensive but satisfying listening experience. And surely that's what counts. If you are considering buying a record player, don't buy a mid-sixes dance-it player, because it just might be my old one, and the needle would tear right through your Bowie picture disc like a chainsaw. My guest today is Joe Reynolds, saxophonist, poet and songwriter. Hi Joe, thanks for joining me on this call. Hi Ray, good to see you. Good to see you too. Joe, what inspired you to take up the sax? Uh, well, I was I was a roadie in a band, and Chris Jones' aggression. They used to let me get up and play harmonica every now and again. So I just wanted an instrument so that I could join the band. And there used to be a little shop in, I think it's King William Street or Primrose L Street. A chap called Reg Willis used to lend you a saxophone if you had lessons from him. So that was the easy way to get hold of a saxophone. <laughs> and that's why I took it up. I I wasn't interested in the saxophone. I just wanted an instrument. And the saxophone was the easy one because Reg taught it. And I just started going to lessons with him. Um, Eventually, I bought a saxophone. 
And I played with Chris for a while, but I was never good enough to carry on playing with Chris. He was a superb musician and I was a an enthusiastic amateur. <laughs> what was Chris Jones Aggression, one of the first bands you played in then? But I only played a harmonica as far as gigs went. I, I didn't do any saxophone gigs with him. Um, I think we played one birthday party. But yeah, um, I used to roadie for him. Although I couldn't drive, I used to just carry all the equipment up the stairs. And <laughs> for that, I got to play the harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember seeing the band play at the Red House. The place was packed with musicians eager to see the band. Yeah. I don't recall you being there, so. No, I... I used to go on a Sunday lunchtime to the Red House. Um, yeah, but I never used to get up at the Red House because that was Roger Lomas, Nigel Lomas, Bill Campbell used to have the stage right. and everybody else could get up because they, they, they used to have a transit van with the – they'd had an extra roof put on so that it was higher. And that Sunday morning used to pay – they used to charge – a couple of bob on the door, oh, right, <laughs> and that right. paid for their petrol. Tell me about Willow, the jazz rock band. I was told you formed it. No, I didn't form it. It was already there. Um, it was called Saffron when I joined. It was a six-piece band, and the, the other sax player had just left. There was a, It was two saxophone players, and Jim Lang, who was a really good saxophone player, asked me if I wanted to join, and he more or less taught me how to play properly. Because I knew all my stuff from the books, but I didn't know how to play in a band. Jim taught me, and he taught me one number at a time, and we'd go out. And they used to pay me full whack, but I'd just blow and mime on the ones I didn't know. And then after about six months, I knew the full repertoire, and we carried on. I think we we probably carried on for about two years under different lineup but the guitarist ted arnold he, he was stayed the same uh noel wood was the singer and there was jim and me on saxes um we we went through three bass players and george stevens on drums we changed our name to willow we we just started to write our, our own stuff the last six months or so um and we were trying to go towards a sort of blood sweat and tear sound we just learned one chicago number um Saturday in the Park, quite a popular Chicago number. But then the band folded, and that's as far as it got, really. Is uh, jazz rock the genre you prefer to play? Um, probably, because as a sax player, there's there's not a lot in mainstream pop music, or at least there wasn't in the 70s for a sax player to do. So, so yeah, I mean, I really like bands like Chicago, like Blood, Sweat and Tears. After Willow, we, I was briefly in this band called George, um, but that was just in the studio. I joined a band called Vehicle from Leamington and Warwick, and they played a lot of jazz. We we did numbers by Buddy Rich, Dave Brubeck, uh, Chicago, Blood, Sweat and Tears. We did a lot of that type of music, and we, we used to have a residency over at the um, Cofton Country Club over in Licky Hills. And that was a that was a, a very tight band. Again, it folded because the bass player. They all seemed to be a little bit errant bass players. You mentioned a band called George. Did you ever play their single NCB Man? No, no. That was um, when Baz Andrusco was with the band because NCB Man never got to be released properly because of the um, there was a mining disaster. I mean, they got to be on. I think it was ATV Today at the time. I remember them going on the TV. Baz had that this stripy dungarees. <laughs> But no, after that, Bob Bob Young, the guitarist, he tried to keep it going in the studio with Monty Bird. 
And we did a few sessions, but nothing came of it. And that's why I joined Vehicle, because I, I do like playing in front of audiences. I'm not one of these people that just like to rehearse forever and never play. I've got an ego, unfortunately. Nothing <laughs> uh, wrong with that. I, I, I just like, I like being in front of an audience. I still do. I'm an old man now, and I still like being in front of an audience. How did you get on Top of the Pops playing Three Minute Hero with Selector? Oh, that was a, another strange one. I After... I went through a lot of bands after that, and I was playing with a band from Nuneaton called Tasty. They were It was a strange band. They were really a glam rock band. But you might have to edit this out, but basically they were trying to emulate the Gary Glitter and the Glitter Band. And <laughs> even to the point where we had two drummers. There was a trumpeter, Lynn Thompson, Nigel Fletcher, and Steve Johnson from Lieutenant Pigeon. Nigel on drums, Steve was on bass. Uh, then we had another drummer who also doubled on trombone. And we used to wear satin suits and makeup and all sorts. And we, we, this, we were in that band. <laughs> and I got this phone call from, I knew Neil Davis from back in the, the sort of late 60s. And Neil phoned me up just out of the blue on Sunday morning. It was a strange request, really. He, he said, we've cut a single. He says we're doing it. and." Funnily enough, it was Jim Lang, the guy that showed me how to play it. They'd got Jim Lang on saxophone on the single. And he, he said, I don't like it because Jim's too good a player. He sounds like a jazz player, and we want, him, want it to sound more street cred. He says, so I'll, I've got the guy from Madness to do it. He says, but his saxophone's being reconditioned. Can you borrow your sax for t- just for the afternoon to do the session? And I, I agreed. And I took the sax. I think it was Pauline Black's house up in Earlsdon somewhere, I took the sax up there and they said, oh, follow us, we're just going down to Horizon. So I tootles off down to Horizon. And I don't remember much after that, but I ended up, the guy from Madness, he'd never turned up. Neil, he never said anything. He just said, come in and play it. Basically, that that was it. Neil told me what to play and I played it. It took loads of takes because I hadn't a clue what he wanted. I, I wasn't used to that sort of music. And then at the end, there's a little bit at the end where I do this sort of glissando thing. Off the top of my head, I, I played that and it was basically a riff I'd been playing in this glam rock band from a track boy. I think it was the real thing. Can you feel the force or something like that? <laughs> you nicked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I nicked it. Yeah. And, and that was it really. And then I had a. I've only ever had about three days off work in my whole life. I've never. I'm not the sort of person that takes days off work, and I had a migraine, and I couldn't go to work. It was a Tuesday. It must have been a Tuesday. I couldn't go to work one Tuesday, and I phoned in work, and I got the phone call from the BBC that said you you you've got to be on top of the pops, because the musicians' union ruling at the time was that if you're on the record, it's got to be you on. So I had to phone work and say not only am I sick today, but I can't come in tomorrow. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. And I got the train. Funnily enough, we had a gig that night and it got cancelled at the last minute um, with the glam rock band. But I met Neil's wife at Cobb Station and we got the train together and then they picked us up from Euston. And in those days, Top of the Pops was supposed to be live. So we, you had to go and re-record it. You, couldn't, you still had to mime, but it had to be to a new version that you re-recorded that morning and we went down to olympic studios and they just it was a one take thing where you just went in all played together and then and i made 
lot of mistakes because I'd only ever played it in the studio. I'd not, I hadn't played it since. <laughs> they said, that's it. And I said, well, what about the mistakes? And they said, don't worry. And they they just switched the tapes over in the bus back to the top of the pops. <laughs> so the, but everybody did it, it seems. That's what everybody did. You went back into the studios. They paid you. I mean, at the time, the money was tremendous from the BBC. And so we went back into the studios. We re-recorded mm-hmm. it. And then they dumped that tape and just replaced it with the master tape from Horizon Studios. And that's what we mimed to on top of the pops. Right. Because you got a 20-second sax solo in there. Yeah. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> 20 seconds of fame. <laughs> Andy Warhol owes me. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But yeah, it was just a, another one of those accidents. I I never planned it, and I until I actually got in there and I had the sax around my neck. I didn't realise I was going to be playing on the record. The, it wasn't a, an arranged thing. Yeah, I I can't find out much about you after 1982. What did you do for the rest of the 80s? Back, back 1984, my third bo- daughter had just been born, and uh, I realised that I wasn't going to make it in the music industry. And I had, a, by then, a wife and three children and a mortgage. So I I took an open university course, and that took me six years to get a maths degree. <laughs> and then I went into – I'd always been working in a factory, so I, I, I got a job as a programmer and um, general production engineer for a company working in Formula One. So I lost touch with everyone, really. I – I mean, working in Formula One, it's quite an intensive business and you have to be available sort of almost 24-7. We were working around the clock. It paid well and uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that. So, uh, strangely enough, I really enjoyed the the math side of it. You know, I, I love mathematics. So it's uh, I've always enjoyed it because I'm... Um, I I don't know whether you know I, I was expelled from school, <laughs> so I never got chance to do. It. Yeah, I was expelled from school uh, for wearing fluorescent orange socks. Believe it or not, okay. I couldn't do my O levels or my A levels, and uh, I did it all later on in life. <laughs> Tell me about your latest venture, the City of Culture Orchestra. At the beginning of COVID, I think it was, or might have been before. When I was doing the creative writing thing, there was something cropped up. There's um, with the city of culture, and they said they were putting an orchestra together to represent the city. And the, the guy that's doing it is a chap called Seb, Sebastian Farrell, Seb Farrell. Um, he's an excellent musician or, in the classical world that I'm, t- I'm not talking there. But um, he put this advert out and said, Anyone that can play is welcome to join. Doesn't matter as long as you've got a reasonable. Co-. He said, We can't teach you, but if you've got a reasonable competence, um, then come and join us, so to speak. And we had, I had to do a little audition tape, and he, he accepted what I played. I played my, the stuff I'd played for my grade eight exams. I think there's 90 of us in the orchestra, all told. Uh, we've also got something like a 30-piece choir there as well. You don't need a bass player. <laughs> uh, n- not at the moment. We're going to... <laughs> there is a guitarist. Um, had, you, had you mentioned it 12 months ago, we could have probably got you in as a bass player. <laughs> okay. I'll keep looking. Are there any other projects coming up this year? Not this year anyway. I've, 
I keep trying to put a little show together of my own and I've got my PA system and I've got all the rest of it, but uh, I haven't, I haven't sort of put any effort into going out for the gigs. I'm also trying to um, get some more, more of my writing published because I, I would like to get some more of my poetry and my short stories published. I've been working on a novel, but I don't know whether I'll ever get the novel finished. It's a, it's a lot of work in novel. You don't realise how much until it. <laughs> oh, no, I've tried and failed. Joe, I think this is a perfect moment to wrap up this interview. Thanks very much for being my guest. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's good to, talking to you again after all these years. <laughs> In the late 60s to early 70s, there was a thriving live music scene in Coventry and surrounding towns. It felt like every other pub and club was putting on live music events, and there were many artists and bands available to cater to the public's desire for live music. And servicing all those musicians with guitar strings, mics, amps and speakers were at least four music stores like Payne's and the Sound Centre. But what Coventry lacked was a good recording studio. And there was one in Berkswell called Midland Sound Recordings, but it was only two-track and really designed for recording brass bands and choral groups. The facilities really were just too limited for a guitar band. I think it was sometime in the mid-70s when I was told about a cool eight-track recording studio in Snitterfield, a small village outside Stratford-upon-Avon, and the guy running it, Monty Bird, charged very favourable hourly rates. The studio was in a World War II-era outbuilding on the edge of a field, I was told many years later that Monty took the studio electricity supply from a substation in that very field. <laughs> Surely not. On walking into the studio, I was usually greeted by Monty Bird and Bob Young on the mixing desk and a strong smell of sackcloth, which was stuck to all the walls. But the ambience of the place was amazing. Monty and Bob were knowledgeable and fun to work with. I think the many cans of beer I'd brought to the recording sessions also helped. Monty and Bob contributed greatly to the finished demos I recorded there over a couple of years, and I'm sure to the other artists and bands that made their way over from Coventry, Leamington and other towns. Unfortunately, sometime in 1978, Monty was suddenly taken ill and died from leukaemia, aged only 30. In 1995, I was able to purchase Monty's TIAC 8-track reel-to-reel recorder from a music store in Coventry. It was back when many recording studios were going digital, but I wanted to recapture the warm analogue sounds that Monty Bird and Bob Young produced all those years ago. Oh, and one last thing. It was Monty who first introduced me to the delights of a frozen Mars bar. Me and my bandmates loved tucking into those bad boys, and together with a can of Hofmeister beer, heaven really was a small, nondescript recording studio deep in rural Warwickshire. Coming up is a song recorded by early 80s soul reggae band Stax, featuring Ray Smith on drums, Carol Lloyd vocals, Earl Smith bass, Bob Drury lead guitar, Bruce on rhythm guitar, sorry Bruce, no surname, and Joe Reynolds on sax, Maybe Baby.
as Mamie Baby by Stax. If you have a non-commercially sung in MP3 format you would like played on a podcast, send me an email to audiowavecafe at gmail.com for more details. Thanks again to Joe Reynolds for being my guest. In the next episode, my guest will be Paul Willow, vocalist with Northern Scar Band, the Scarpones. Paul tells me he helped set up the Coventry Music Museum with Pete Chambers. My topic will be, is TikTok changing the music industry? And I shine a spotlight on when the Brits invaded America. Uh, is that it? Yeah, I'm done. Till next time.